When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Conspiracy the Show. I'm your host, Adam Todd Brown. I don't have a co-host this week. I am going it alone. Why? Because we are finally digging in to part two of the book, The CIA and the Cult of Intelligence. Just to refresh your memory, this was the first book the U.S. government ever tried to censor on national security grounds. It's a forgotten moment in American history, due in large part to the fact that the events and lawsuits around this book happened around the same time the government was trying to hang a New York Times reporter in the town square for reporting on the Pentagon Papers. Those were a series of documents that made it really clear that the American government was lying to the people about the country's dealings in Vietnam. One of the big differences between this book and the Pentagon Papers is that the Pentagon Papers just revealed that the government lied to us a bunch in the past. The CIA and the cult of intelligence, on the other hand, was about things that the government was doing in the present, at least at the back then present. You get it. And here's the thing. Evil as it may be, the U.S. government isn't the least transparent in the world. It's just that they usually take a long, long time to tell us stuff. Like how all those Roswell UFO files are just now coming out, for example. And even then, we only get the absolute minimum amount of information they can give us while staying within the boundaries of the law. And because of that sheen of transparency, when you dive into older source material like this book, you'll sometimes find things that are presented as shocking revelations that these days are just common knowledge and accepted as things the government does. Case in point, part two of this book kicks off with a section about special operations. Did you know the CIA sometimes deals with their problems by way of covert military action? Yeah, of course you know that. We have known that for decades now. But information didn't flow as freely in the early 70s. So back then, this was news to everyone who read this book. The first few pages of this chapter spend a lot of words explaining some fundamental things about the CIA that anyone who is interested in the agency at all already knows by now. Example, there are two types of CIA agents, the ones who do spy shit and the ones who do murder shit. And you can tell what side of the fence Victor Marchetti, the author of this book, fell on from his descriptions of each side. The clandestine spy guys are, quote, engaging in a gentleman's game, end quote. The war guys, meanwhile, are described as both gangsters and animals in the span of one paragraph. 
but it's not all common knowledge in this chapter. At one point, it talks about how the CIA back in the 1950s realized that keeping full-time military types on staff wasn't cost-effective because they were useless when there wasn't war stuff to do. So, instead of hiring full-time mercenaries, they would just recruit from the Navy SEALs and other especially advanced military units and get them on loan. Those soldiers would serve their duty with the CIA and then go back to their regular military life, and the CIA time counted toward their military time. It's like a vacation, but instead of lounging on a beach with a drink in your hand, you're pulling up to a beach in a military boat so you can topple a lawfully elected socialist leader. And that's actually not that interesting of a detail. I only bring it up because that process of getting military fighters on loan is for some reason called sheep dipping. One legitimately interesting set of details in this chapter involves the type of weapons the CIA was being trained on in the years before this book came out. The account comes from a former CIA agent who gave an interview to Ramparts magazine. Use code CONSPIRACY at checkout to save more than 11% on your annual subscription. Some of the stuff he talks about is kind of -of run-of-the-mill by today's standards. Bullets that explode on impact machine guns with silencers, homemade explosives, things of the like. But then he brings up the mini cannon. Here's a quote. It was constructed of a concave piece of steel fitted into the top of a number 10 can filled with a plastic explosive. When the device was detonated, the tremendous heat of friction of the steel turning inside out made the steel piece a white-hot projectile. There was a number of uses for the mini cannon, one of which was demonstrated to us using an old army school bus. The mini cannon was fastened to the gasoline tank in such a fashion that the incendiary projectile would rupture the tank and fling flaming gasoline the length of the bus interior, incinerating anyone inside. End quote and yikes. For the record, the guy giving this account was driven to retire after seeing this demonstration. He got into the CIA thinking he was doing so to help spread democracy and good, and then realized his job was more of a burn innocent civilians alive sometimes kind of gig. It was probably because of public accounts like this, among other things, Watergate being one of them, that in the 70s, there was this big push to reform the CIA. And if you ask history... That did actually happen. But I kind of take issue with that. I feel like the notion that the CIA has ever been reformed in any significant or beneficial way is incorrect. Yes, there were lots of revelations in the 70s. There was the church committee, which we'll talk about near the end of this episode. But eventually, the reform we got was an agreement that the CIA wouldn't conduct mass surveillance on American citizens or operate on American soil. And for one thing, if you believe the suggestion that Jonestown was a CIA operation is true, then they'd already moved on from the hospital phase of that project and relocated to foreign lands to carry out the mass experiment phase by the time any of that reform started. And even if you don't believe that, We know for sure that the CIA was training mercenaries in Latin America by the early 70s. So aside from the MKUltra stuff, the CIA seemed to be almost completely focused on doing business in countries that weren't the United States. So thinking that banning them from operating on American soil 
was a punishment is kind of silly. They didn't want to operate on American soil anyway. And you can see more proof of that in the document I'll link to in the show notes. It was written in 1980, and it details the CIA's long-term plans for that decade and beyond. For one thing, they definitely had no plans of downsizing now that the American people were mad at them. Not only did they want to expand, they especially wanted to expand the exact kind of special operations this chapter of the CIA and the Cult of Intelligence talks about. So much so that they even wanted to go back to having paramilitary units on standby again instead of sheep-dipping troops on loan from the military. This document also highlighted the need to come up with money for those operations outside of the usual just-ask-Congress-for-it avenues. This was published very shortly after, for the first time in history, a CIA director decided to seek the second-highest office in all the land, Vice President of the United States. That CIA director was George H.W. Bush. Hey, remember that time Ronald Reagan was inaugurated as the 40th President of the United States on January 20th, 1981? And approximately eight weeks later, someone tried to kill him in weirdo CIA mind control fashion? I'm sure none of that had anything to do with how vehemently Reagan went along with the suggestions in this CIA sales pitch for the majority of his presidency. For starters, we absolutely wrecked shop in Central America, putting down leftist regimes that dared to give their people food for cheap in our half of the hemisphere. In other words, just as this same 1980 CIA document mentions, the fight against communism shifted its focus from Russia to a more broad selection of smaller countries. And the book touches on why that might have been. We'll get into it later. As for the part about finding money for these operations, we know that also came to pass in the 80s, as seen in the Iran-Contra scandal and, more recently, the FX original series Snowfall. Both of those schemes involved selling stuff and funneling money to the people behind our various early 80s interventions in Central America, eventually leading to all sorts of modern-day problems that keep our domestic law enforcement and intelligence agencies employed. Nice. What I'm getting at is that the special operations stuff mentioned in this book never stopped, which probably goes a long way toward explaining why the government doesn't really bother with censorship attempts of this sort anymore. Like, sure, the Pentagon Papers embarrass some people. There might have been a resignation or two over it. But so what about any of that? Those are pretty minor ramifications for a scandal that involved us finding out the government propaganded the country into a war that cost tens of thousands of lives. As for this book, the CIA didn't have to change anything after this book was published. They just carried on as usual, moving in the same direction they'd been planning to move the entire time. So what's the point of spending resources on censorship litigation? I'd bet money that it's become even less important as society has moved toward labeling anything that someone claims the government did that the government doesn't admit to as a conspiracy theory. Well done, America. Hey, let's talk about Chapter 5 of the CIA and the Cult of Intelligence. This chapter is all about proprietary organizations. I feel like the American public has a real pretend-none-of-this-is-happening kind of relationship with the CIA, and that's especially true when it comes to things like proprietary organizations. That's just a fancy way to say fronts. These are businesses or organizations that are funded by and operate mostly for the benefit of the CIA, even if they don't say so publicly. It might not say CIA air on the side of the plane, but rest assured, 
If some cocaine needs a fly-in to or from Latin America, that's the plane it's going to be on. We like to make jokes these days about how the various forms of digital intrusion that we've allowed into our private lives might secretly be government-funded efforts. But most of the time, that's just true. Take Google Earth, for example. It's not like there's just some distant possibility that the CIA was involved in developing a program that takes aerial view photos of the entire world all the time. No, it's just that the CIA developed that program. What we know as Google Earth now started life as Keyhole Incorporated, a CIA-funded satellite mapping company that was acquired by Google in 2005. Google acquired Keyhole Inc. from NQTEL, which is quite literally the investment capital wing of the CIA. Again, that's not just a suggestion or hyperbole. Here's the opening paragraph of NQTEL's about page, which you can easily find for yourself at IQT.org. Here goes. NQTEL was founded in 1999 as the global technological evolution is underway, the internet is widely available, mobile applications are launching, and the digital revolution has arrived. The CIA and government agencies, once innovation leaders, recognized they were missing out on the cutting-edge, innovative, and impactful technologies coming out of Silicon Valley and beyond. Combining the security savvy of government with the can-do curiosity of Silicon Valley, NQTEL is born. And that's where your damn Google Earths are coming from. But don't worry, the Q in the name is just a James Bond reference, not a cabal of global elite sex traffickers reference. If you do make your way over to IQT.org, take a look at their portfolio section, because it is nine solid pages of CIA-adjacent companies with CIA-adjacent names that all do CIA-adjacent things. If you don't have time to check it out for yourself, here are some highlights. Falconry, an analytics company. Prescian, an AI and machine learning company. Tortuga Logic, that's an infrastructure company, and I know Tortuga means turtle, but it also shares way too many letters with the word torture for me to be comfortable with the CIA using it. Next one, Morpheus Space. What do they do? People, it just says space. Everything else on this list is machine learning or analytics or autonomous systems. But for Morpheus Space, it just says space. How about you meet them there if you have more questions, nerdlinger? Then there's DeepGram, which is AI and machine learning. That sounds like Instagram for deep fakes, and I'm assuming that is exactly what it is until someone proves otherwise. Cockroach Labs. Trust them for all your IT platform needs. There's also Flirty, which, as the name implies, is an autonomous systems company that will definitely never morph into a CIA-controlled dating app. There's Anaconda Analytics, presented without further comment. And finally, Black Bag Technologies, possibly the least subtle name you could give to a CIA-owned company. There's also one more interesting name on the list of CIA-owned tech companies, and that is Palantir Analytics. That's a name that's come up a lot on this podcast and a few others on the network, mostly in relation to the LAPD. Yes, I know it's a Lord of the Rings reference. Cool it, nerds. It's also a massive database of information that compiles all sorts of data from various surveillance streams and makes it searchable for law enforcement purposes. It's mainstream knowledge to the point that if you watch the massively underrated heist film Den of Thieves, you'll hear Gerard Butler's dirty cop character make reference to running a Palantir search for 50 Cent or whoever the hell 
he was after in that movie. So in summary, when it comes to proprietary organizations, the CIA funded what is arguably the largest database of pictures of the Earth and the database most trusted by law enforcement to track down criminals at the local level. This isn't a secret, and it doesn't take an internet search professional to find this information, but it feels like we still treat news like this as if it's just a theory or a suggestion. Like, ha careful on that phone, government might be spying on you. But there's no might about it. The government is just spying on you. So back to the book, The CIA and the Cult of Intelligence. Obviously, the CIA front companies it references are far less tech-savvy than what they're dabbling in these days, but interesting nonetheless. For one thing, they're referred to in the book as the Delaware Corporations. These are, again, companies or organizations that by all public appearances operate independently, but behind closed doors, they're funded and controlled by the CIA. The majority of them, at least at the time, probably still, were set up in Delaware because that state has notoriously lenient regulations when it comes to corporations. Two of the earliest CIA fronts, both set up in the 1950s, were Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty, which are both, obviously, car dealerships. Wait, no, radio stations. Those are radio stations. And if you can believe it, the CIA used them both to drop the hottest propaganda on the streets whenever the situation called for it. The board of both companies were filled with prominent American business types, but it was the agency who had their people in all of the management and programming positions. A similar company was used during the Bay of Pigs fiasco. The CIA set up a radio station on a desolate island in the Caribbean called Swan Island, and they gave that radio station the creative name Radio Swan. According to all public records, it was an independently owned station that just happened to be hardcore dedicated to parroting CIA talking points. Except, when the Bay of Pigs invasion began, they stopped with the propaganda and just started straight-up broadcasting orders to the troops. So that cover was blown, but also that was way, way, way down near the bottom on the list of concerns with the Bay of Pigs invasion. The CIA doesn't just deal in radio stations and tricking us into locking ourselves into a digital prison of our own making, though. They also own a bunch of airlines, or at least they did back when this book was published. They probably own fleets of UFOs by now. But yeah, dominating the globe in the name of fighting the commies requires a significant amount of air travel. So much so that it's just easier to own a whole bunch of commercial airline companies as opposed to risk going through a travel agency just to find out it's owned by Carrie Russell and the guy from The Americans. God, I miss that show. Anyway, the CIA owned a bunch of airlines, and that sets up one of the most interesting deletions in this book. Remember, the feds got to read this first, and some of the things they wanted cut did indeed get cut. Here's a sentence about the CIA-owned airlines. Agency proprietaries include Air America, Air Asia, Civil Air Transport, Intermountain Aviation, Southern Air Aviation, deleted, and several other air charter companies around the world. Which one was so sensitive that the public couldn't know about it? I want to know. It would be funny if it was like Spirit Airlines or something, and they were just too ashamed to admit they own that one. But it's obviously not that. Spirit Airlines didn't exist when this book was written, and Spirit Airlines secretly rules. You're just a bad traveler if you think otherwise. Whatever the case, the CIA's airline holdings at the time amounted to one of, if not the largest, fleets of commercial aircraft 
owned by one person or group. But again, I'm sure they've abandoned commercial airliners for UFOs or jumping through wormholes or something like that. The next section of the book, chapter six, is dedicated to propaganda and disinformation, which is crazy because only Russia does that, right? Of course not. We're great at it too. We always have been. One thing that comes up right away in this section is that we aren't just good at it. Sometimes we're too good at it. The example they use is the Foreign Broadcast Information Service, which was a CIA-owned outfit, and their main role was to monitor news reports from various world intelligence hotspots and compile those stories into a handy, you know, compilation. And then they would disseminate that to various government and academic institutions that might need it. Nothing shady about that. I could use a service like that myself. But they didn't just do that. The FBIS would also monitor the various fake radio stations and transmitters that the CIA erected all around the world to gauge what kind of reach the fake nonsense they were broadcasting through those radios was getting. And do you see where this is going? What would often end up happening is the fake CIA-created news stories that they were monitoring would sometimes get mixed in with the legitimate news stories that they were distributing to the government and colleges and universities. In other words, their fake news was getting presented to the world at large as real news. And do you know what the CIA did to fix this? Not a goddamn thing. If legitimate academics and government officials are pushing those fake news stories, it just makes those stories seem less fake and thus more effective. Everyone wins except for most of us. A lot of what comes up in this section of the book is redacted in dramatic fashion. Example, this passage. Meanwhile, the agency's operatives turned to outright disinformation in their effort to exploit China's internal difficulties. For example, comma, 12 lines deleted. We'll never know. And then there's this passage. The Red Guards turned their fury on the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, demanding that Chinese diplomats, too, be cleansed of Western ways and rededicated to Mao's principles of communism. 22 lines deleted. And then here's one more. A propaganda operation might not be anything more devious than broadcasting straight news reports or rock music to the countries of Eastern Europe. Others are far more devious. 11 lines deleted. So we can't be sure what exact form of devious was outlined in that deleted passage. But here's one from later in the book. At one point, the CIA was secretly funding a New York-based communist newspaper called The Daily Worker. Don't take that as a reflection of the staff at The Daily Worker. None of them knew about this because the support came strictly in the form of thousands of prepaid subscriptions to The Daily Worker, all paid for by the CIA. Why? Because they felt The Daily Worker having a large subscriber base would make Americans take the threat of communism more seriously. I know what you're going to ask. Doesn't that sort of imply that the threat of communism wasn't all that serious at the time? Good question, comrade. How about you take it up with the CIA? Oh, and just as an aside, in this section of the book, they also reference Nazi Germany's use of, quote, the big lie, end quote, as one of the major advances in propaganda and misinformation. And let me tell you, hearing the phrase the big lie tossed around in that way isn't at all alarming in a 2022 context. Anyway, the book also touches on the three different kinds of disinformation, white, gray, and black. White disinformation, or white propaganda, has to be the rarest of all, because apparently that just means the CIA tells the people the truth. 
if we as a government were engaging in that one a bunch, we probably wouldn't even have or need a CIA. Then there's gray propaganda, which is the truth with a little or a lot of lies mixed in with it. I think a good example of this can be found in a CIA-related documentary that I bring up all the time, which is Wormwood, which you can see on Netflix. In that case, the CIA just straight up accepts responsibility for and admits to giving an agent too much LSD during an experiment gone awry, eventually causing him to jump to his death from a hotel window. Except that it turns out there was a lot more to it than that. LSD? Yes. Out a window? Yes. But it was less that he went crazy from the drugs and more that he grew a conscience because of the drugs and wanted to tell the world that we used chemical weapons in the Korean War. So the CIA had to have someone chuck him out a window for the good of the country. But hey, at least his family got to meet Gerald Ford. And then the third kind of propaganda, the worst kind, is called black propaganda. It's also affectionately referred to as disinformation, which is great because I feel very uncomfortable calling the worst kind of propaganda black propaganda. That in and of itself feels like a psychological operation of some sort on the government's part. But as the name disinformation implies, this is just outright lies. Just the government lying to the people. And somehow, in any book or media of any sort that mentions this, Russia is always credited with inventing this, as if no one knew how to lie to their citizenry before Khrushchev took power. And what's weird about this section of the book, and a lot of the book in general, is that a lot of it is just kind of boring and mundane. That probably goes a long way toward explaining why the CIA has a Hollywood liaison department that exists solely to consult on movie projects in the hope of making the agency look more like a bunch of well-intentioned George Clooney's and less like a bunch of half-Nazis acting on behalf of corporate America. While there is obviously lots of rootin' and tootin' and gun-shootin' inherent to what the CIA does, a lot of it is also stuff like a story in the book about how they responded to a potentially inflammatory Russian forgery. It was a document that claimed to prove the United States was supporting the overthrow of the Indonesian government. And here's the problem. We were supporting the overthrow of the Indonesian government. Of course we were! So to put this story to bed, Richard Helms, then deputy director of clandestine services, eventual director of the CIA, briefed the Senate Internal Security Subcommittee on communist forgeries and included the Indonesia documents among 30 or so other examples of obvious forgeries. When he presented this, he made no mention of the validity of the information in the Indonesia forgeries, just that these, along with the 30 or so others, were all just obviously fake documents. So they took this fake document that Russia was hoping the public would see and react to in a negative way, and to neutralize all that, they just showed it to the public and said, look, this is obviously fake, but just the document. Not the words in it. They never said the words in it were fake, but that's where the story died. Helm's testimony was entered into the public record, and the matter was put to rest without the feds even having to talk about it. And see? Not all that interesting. Turns out there's a lot of mundane day-to-day -day tasks that come with upholding American ideals around the globe. Something else that comes up in the propaganda and disinformation section of the book is something that came up in the proprietary organization section also, which is the radio stations. There were a lot of them because the radio was the shit at the time. Which leads to what I think is a very obvious question. 
Seeing as how podcasts are the radio stations of today, have you ever taken time to think about what podcasts are produced and funded by the CIA? Because I have. For starters... And oh man, don't even get me started on. The radio stations, or just the radios, as this book calls them. The CIA had a whole damn bunch back in the day. Enough that their combined annual budgets ranged anywhere from 30 to $35 million in 1950s money. The majority of the focus on the radios here is how they eventually fell out of use for a whole variety of reasons. Not the least of which being that the stations and staff of both Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty eventually became filthy with communist infiltrators. Here's hoping that doesn't happen to podcasts. One really interesting aspect of this book is what it shows about how the CIA spends that massive budget it has at its disposal, which is hilariously listed as just $15 billion per year as of 2013. They probably spend that on burner phones alone every year. But hey, there are starving intelligence agencies in this world that would love to have $15 billion to spend every year, and the CIA is obviously really good at spreading their money around. One of the operations mentioned in this book, for example, involves the cleverly named Asia Foundation. This was a group established by the agency in 1956 with the usual non-government board of directors set up that they use for the radio stations, to make it seem like a private entity. And the aim of the group was just to promote academic and public interest in the East. And they mostly did that. Just prominent names from Asian culture, promoting Asian culture, and seemingly nothing more. Which made it all the more impactful when, every once in a while, an article or report that was critical of mainland China, North Vietnam, or North Korea would make its way to the public through the Asia Foundation. The whole point of the foundation in real life was to spread pro-American talking points and negative views of communist countries in Asia. But because it operated with that veneer of being a private entity with no government ties, the views spread by the Asia Foundation would make their way back to academics in the United States, who would then kind of unwittingly form their views on China and any communist country in Asia based on CIA talking points. That was the part the CIA cared about. And they spent $8 million annually just on this one effort. Again, that's in 1950s and 60s money. There's a really frustrating deletion in this section also. Here goes. During the 1960s, the CIA developed proprietary companies of a new type for use in propaganda operations. These proprietaries are more compact and more covert than relatively unwieldy and now exposed fronts like the Asia Foundation and Radio Free Europe. 27 lines deleted. 
Not even a hint as to what those new organizations might have been. Seeing as how this book was published in the early 70s, I'm going to guess that they were waterbed dealerships or disco albums or something. Or maybe books. Remember books? I'm discussing one with you on a podcast right now. As it turns out, not only was the CIA interested in shutting down books like this one, they were equally interested and invested in helping publish books that make their adversaries look like jerks. That shouldn't come as too much of a surprise. Again, this was way back in the day when we still valued books. I'm assuming this is all even easier now that they just have to finance TikTok videos in New York Times editorials and whatnot. One particular area of interest when it came to book publishing in the Cold War era was defectors. People who fled communism for the healing goodness of the West were treated like royalty back then, and according to this book, the CIA would often play a big role in that, including encouraging defectors to write books, helping them write those books, and then getting those books published. Or in some cases, they might have just low-key written entire books. That was suspected to be the case with a book called The Penkovsky Papers. It was a bestseller when it was released back in 1965, and it was alleged to have been based in large part on the journals of Russian spy Oleg Penkovsky. He was a high-ranking Russian military official who provided information to the West that was said to have been instrumental in our efforts to not die in a nuclear apocalypse during the Cuban Missile Crisis. He's for sure a real person who did some real spying that he got real executed by Russia for. The question is whether the book is real. Even back when it came out, people weren't so sure it was. For one thing, the authors of the CIA and the Cult of Intelligence argue that while some of Penkovsky's information was useful in a limited capacity, all of the key intelligence that helped defuse the Cuban Missile Crisis came from satellite photos of Russia, from tracking Russian ships, and from U-2 spy plane images of Cuba. There's also a deletion in this book that seems like it might be a reference to the Penkovsky papers. There's a section that starts with four and a half lines deleted, followed by this. Spies, however, do not keep journals. They simply do not take that kind of risk, nor do they have time to do so while they are leading double lives, end quote. And again, this is a book that's alleged to be based on the journals of a spy. And that echoes a concern raised at the time by Russia expert and Washington Post columnist Viktor Zorza, which is that there was absolutely no way Penkovsky had the time to produce a manuscript of this nature, all while living the life of a high-ranking Russian spy. And those concerns were not at all assuaged by the fact that neither the publisher, Doubleday and Company, nor the manuscript translator, who also happened to be a former KGB agent who defected to work for the CIA, neither of them were willing to release the original Russian manuscript so it could be inspected independently. Victor Zorza also noted that the book made errors in style, technique, and fact that Penkovsky would not have made. Here's a quote from him. The book could have been compiled only by the Central Intelligence Agency. End quote. And what would be the purpose of all this? Well, for one thing, it makes Russia look stupid. And that was like 75% of the CIA's focus in the 60s. But there might have been a slightly more secret motivation. One thing the Cult of Intelligence book mentions a whole bunch is that intelligence gathering inside the Soviet Union was, at least at the time, a thing the CIA was absolutely terrible at. So much so that they eventually just sort of stopped trying 
for a while. When Oleg Penkovsky first presented himself as a spy, he did it by directly approaching the CIA, and they turned him away because they were too scarred from their past failures at flipping in-person spies that they didn't want to risk getting burned again. It wasn't until he approached MI6 that the information started flowing from him. And the Pankowski Papers rewrites that whole story, at least in that it makes it seem like the CIA had some success in gathering intelligence inside Russian borders. Does that seem like a good use of CIA budget money? Probably not, but listen, that $15 billion a year ain't going to spend itself, okay? So the last chapter in part two of the CIA and the Cult of Intelligence, chapter seven, it's titled Espionage and Counterespionage. This chapter kicks off with a few more pages that contrast the Hollywood image of the CIA as swashbuckling spies getting things done face-to-face on the ground with the reality at the time, which was that they spent a lot more time looking at satellite photos and making good guesses about publicly available news than they did using their dicks to defeat communism. When there was an intelligence coup to celebrate, it usually happened because a disgruntled Russian walked in off the street to offer up their services, like with Oleg Penkovsky. Something the agency apparently got a lot more espionage traction out of back then was covert listening devices or bugs, as the industry calls them. The next part of the espionage chapter is all about the planting of bugs, and it paints a kind of fun picture of at least part of the CIA as being a group that was mostly dedicated not to asking, what can we put a secret microphone in, but instead asking, what can't we put a secret microphone in? Because it seems like even at that point in history when this book was written, the answer was, and probably still is, Nothing. They were putting microphones in everything, even back then. False teeth. They had false teeth microphones in the 60s. And that meant that instead of targeting enemy government officials to flip them as spies, the CIA would target security or maintenance staff at buildings where those officials worked. Anyone who might be in a position to plant a listening device somewhere. Once again, This was apparently way more effective against countries that weren't Russia or China. Latin America, for example, was just absolutely filthy with CIA listening devices. Judging from this book, it seems like a lot of our motivation in fighting communism in Latin America was just that it was way easier to do there. If we can't beat Russia, we can at least beat the communism out of smaller countries with lesser defenses. And a more modern example of when the U.S. would have likely had to target someone with physical access to a building to carry off an operation was an Obama-era attack on Iran's nuclear facilities. There's a fantastic documentary about it called Zero Days. came out in 2016. To get the malware used in that attack into the Iranian facility, someone had to walk it in and physically install it using a USB drive. And now because someone agreed to do that, something like 106% of all the world's computers are infected with the Stuxnet virus over it. Thanks, Obama. Watch the documentary. You'll understand. Now, as you'd probably expect, the government deletions get pretty intense the further along you go in the espionage and counter-espionage section. This includes one section with a whopping 87 deleted lines. Fortunately, none of those deleted lines are the ones that make up the story about the time someone at the CIA suggested the idea of an airplane that agents could carry in a couple of suitcases 
until the need to assemble it and fly out of the country arose. Sure, lugging all that extra equipment around will be a hassle, but think of how grateful you'll be when you have to flee a dangerous situation on a moment's notice, and all it requires is finding a safe space to assemble two checked bags worth of airplane parts and a runway from which to launch yourself to safety. That is absolutely the CIA job I would want the most. Just sitting around, thinking up wacky stuff our spies could do if only they were better at being spies. Again, that $15 billion isn't going to spend itself. So there's a whole lot more to this book, like a whole third section that I'll probably get into on a later episode, if for no other reason than because the stuff about how the CIA recruited and trained agents back then is just full of thrills and chills. But I want to close out this discussion about part two by focusing on a couple of interesting moments of foreshadowing that I found in the CIA and the cult of intelligence. For one thing, there's a whole bunch of stuff about the NSA. And on the surface, that shouldn't be surprising. The NSA and the CIA are constantly jockeying for the number one spot in terms of annual budget and propensity for evil both. The NSA essentially exists because the CIA isn't allowed to perform mass surveillance on Americans. So instead, the NSA does it for them, just as the law intended. So of course they'd come up in this book, except for the part where, according to most official histories of the NSA, we didn't even know about the NSA when this book was published. Here's the last sentence of the opening paragraph of the NSA's Wikipedia page. The existence of the NSA was not revealed until 1975. End quote. Which is weird because the CIA and the Cult of Intelligence was published in June 1974. And yes, I know Wikipedia isn't a reliable source. Encyclopedias were way more trustworthy when they were written by a secret cabal of old white men and were completely uneditable for a year or more at a time. I get it. But the source link for that claim is an NPR story called A Brief History of the NSA. And you know how us libs trust NPR. They are technically correct, though. Even if the existence of the NSA was revealed in this book first, its existence didn't become widely known until the church committee hearings kicked off in 1975. This despite the fact that the NSA was established way back in 1952 by Harry Truman, the same president who established the CIA five years earlier, and dropped two new nuclear weapons on the nation of Japan for questionable reasons two years before that. I'm going to be honest, I think Truman might have been a bad president who made bad decisions. Starting to think there have been a bunch of those over the years, honestly. And to give you an idea of just how secretive the existence and function of the NSA truly was at this time when this book came out, check out this quote from Senator Frank Church the head of the church committee, which again is the committee that officially exposed the NSA to the public. I apologize, this quote is kind of long, but at least take solace in the fact that it's also horrifying. Here goes. Again, this is Senator Frank Church, head of the church committee, speaking about the NSA. In the need to develop a capacity to know what potential enemies are doing, the United States government has perfected a technological capability that enables us to monitor the messages that go through the air. Now, that is necessary and important to the United States as we look abroad at enemies or potential enemies. We must know, at the same time, that capability at any time could be turned around on the American people, and no American would have any privacy left. Such is the capability to monitor everything. Telephone conversations, telegrams, it doesn't matter. 
There would be no place to hide. If this government ever became a tyranny, if a dictator ever took charge in this country, the technological capacity that the intelligence community has given the government could enable it to impose total tyranny, and there would be no way to fight back because the most careful effort to combine together in resistance to the government, no matter how privately it was done, is within the reach of the government to know. Such is the capability of this technology. I don't want to see this country ever go across this bridge. I know the capacity that is there to make tyranny total in America, and we must see to it that this agency and all agencies that possess this technology operate within the law and under proper supervision so that we never cross over that abyss. That is the abyss from which there is no return. That is Frank Church during an appearance on NBC's Meet the Press in August 1975, and it is pretty yikes. Especially when you take into account that the biggest revelation from the Edward Snowden leaks in 2013 was a whole host of surveillance programs the NSA was running on Americans. So clearly, we did not rein in that capacity for tyranny, as Senator Church suggested. Also, did you notice what Frank Church did not do in that long warning? Here. I'll read it again in case you missed it. Just joking. That quote was way too long. So I'll just tell you, what he never does is mention the NSA by name. He just says we have the ability to do what we now know the NSA does. So again, the fact that the NSA comes up extensively in a book published a full year before Frank Church built up the nerve to say what he said on television is kind of surprising. But I also think I can explain it. When the authors brought up book publishing as a propaganda tool, they mentioned that quite often one of the main or only points of publishing said book would be to embarrass the enemy. And while I do think this book is mostly objective and definitely delivers a whole bunch of interesting information and insight into the early years of the CIA, the authors also clearly have a little bit of a bone to pick with the CIA and the intelligence community in general. I mentioned earlier in this episode that a whole lot of attention is paid to how ineffective the CIA was when it came to gathering intelligence using spies inside the borders of hostile nations, and that all the real useful intelligence comes from the analysts examining collected intelligence in all its forms. With that in mind, it's worth reminding listeners that Victor Marchetti, the main author of this book, was a CIA analyst. He wasn't one of those inept James Bond wannabe war machines out in the streets shooting people dead with cufflink guns for shits and giggles. He did the real work. And I'm not in any position to judge whether he's correct in that assessment of the CIA's seeming inability to spy in person. I'm just saying he repeatedly gives the impression that the CIA was mostly inept and inferior at that type of spying compared to Russia or China. Same thing with the NSA. There's lots and lots of details about what they were capable of, but it's all presented as if they still didn't really know what to do with all of the information they were gathering. He credits most of the NSA's successes to what are referred to as breaks, which, yes, exactly what it sounds like, usually has the word lucky in front of it. Breaks essentially means the enemy lets their guard down just a little while you happen to be watching and are able to exploit the opportunity. One example they use in the book is a Russian agent 
who sent a message to a KGB office, but forgot to encrypt it. Then, realizing what he'd done, he sent the message again, but this time he encrypted it. And naturally, the NSA intercepted both of these messages, meaning they now had the cipher used to encrypt messages, and they had an unencrypted message to compare that cipher to. And from that point, anyone with know-how to operate a decoder ring can crack any messages sent with that cipher in the future. Also, intelligence agencies tend to save encrypted messages for the inevitable day when they're able to crack them in the future. So this break would have compromised a whole bunch of messages sent previously as well. And the authors of this book mostly paint the NSA as an organization that succeeds in that way. Not because they're good at what they do, but because the enemy is bad at what they do sometimes. And I think that's why the government let all of the NSA info pass in this book. For being a section that is about things that wouldn't become public knowledge for at least another year, the NSA section of the book is shockingly light on government-mandated redactions. I can't prove it, obviously, but my gut tells me that's because they knew those church committee investigations were coming down the pike and thus had no problem with an account of the NSA as a bunch of ineffective busybodies who survive mostly on luck, making its way to the public first. At least I hope that's what happened. Because there is the other, even less savory possibility that this book was all just one big gray propaganda campaign in and of itself. Just like all the others this book describes. With Watergate having already happened and more large-scale investigations guaranteed to be coming in the future, it is entirely possible that those moments where the book makes the CIA and the NSA seem less scary and effective than we think they are, that could be the entire point of this book. Just a little watering down of the story before the true horrors were revealed in a way that the general public would be less willing to consume in its entirety. This is one book, and it sold really well. The final church committee report was six books, and they were all long as shit. Which one would you be more likely to read? Which one am I reading? Exactly. And I get paid to do this. So yeah, definitely possible that this entire book, as weird as it might sound, was just a ploy to make the American intelligence apparatus seem less scary than it really was. However, there is one other bit that gives me hope that I'm wrong about that. In this final chapter of part two, a whole lot of space is given to the CIA's various dealings with colleges and universities across the country at the time. It mentions the agency's connections to American college campuses was so vast and compartmentalized that even then director Richard Helms wasn't quite sure who was doing what or who they were doing it for or who was even tracking it. They also go into detail about some of the things that they knew the CIA was using college campuses for, which mostly amounted to stuff like launching propaganda campaigns against foreign countries from the campus of the University of Michigan for some reason. Stuff like that. You know what's not mentioned? The part where the CIA conducted decades and decades worth of psychological experiments on unwitting American citizens. That's called MKUltra, folks. And despite also being about a year away from becoming public knowledge, that most massive of CIA programs is never named or discussed in this book. But there is one paragraph. It comes after a couple of pages about a 1967 study about CIA activities on college campuses. Here's what that paragraph says, and it's worth noting, this is in bold print. 
in the book. Here goes. The 1967 study on the CIA's ties with American universities covered all the activities described above, but the staff officer responsible for preparing it was told that no research program concerning the use of drugs was to be mentioned in the report. End quote. And those two sentences alone restored my faith in this book as not being a government propaganda effort. And I imagine those two sentences had to be extra frustrating for the government's efforts to censor this book. Because on their own, and in the context of this book, those two sentences don't amount to a disclosure of information that would threaten national security. They almost read like throwaway lines. But given what we would go on to learn about MKUltra very shortly after this book was published, those two sentences amount to what has to be one of the most jaw-dropping examples of foreshadowing ever in a book about the American government. I don't know if the authors knew what they were saying, but they were definitely saying something with those two sentences. And with that, we have reached the end of part two of The CIA and the Cult of Intelligence. The first book the United States government ever tried to censor on national security grounds. As I mentioned shortly ago, I'll probably do a third episode about this book at some point. Part three does have some interesting details about how the CIA recruited and trained their agents and the things the government did to try and control the CIA after it was founded and how poorly that all failed. So we'll get into that on a future episode. In the meantime... Do we have anything to plug before we get out of here? No. No, we don't. This is a solo episode. I usually don't plug stuff on solo episodes. I will say, thank you so much for listening. I very much appreciate it. If you want to read up more about this book or any of the things we mentioned in this episode about the book, just click on that show notes link. You can read it all there. And all right, let's get out of here. Adam, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. We love you. 